Hello and welcome to the Recursive Podcast. It's me, Georgi, today, and I'm introducing my next guest, who is Christo Nechev, a serial entrepreneur and uh, one of my uh, closest uh, friends in the business world here in Bulgaria. So, um, we're going straight into it. You're a person that's interested in a lot of things, and we have a limited amount of time that I really want to go through the most important stuff. Uh, thank you for, for joining us. Thanks for having me, it's a pleasure. Christo, we'll do a very quick game here. Um, please finish the sentence to your liking. It's, uh, it's our blitz round. Mm-hmm. You ready? Yes. I start my day with? Meditation. Success is? Happiness. Failure is not? Uh, important. The hobby that helped me the most is? Kitesurfing. Who would you rather go to space with? Richard Branson, Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk? Elon Musk. When I have a business challenge that I have no answer to, I turn to? Experimentation. I believe that my mission is to? Help human beings. It's rarely in the business world that someone uh, speaks about uh, the failures of um, the endeavors in the way that you do. You call them startups that gracefully failed. Why do you use grace uh, in regards to failures? Yeah, it's, it's a long story basically, but uh, it boils down to, uh, to my perception that in our region, uh, we perceive failure as something really bad. We've been always trained not to fail, always to have a very good marks in school, always to do, to, do, to do well and never to fail. And so we kind of fear failure. And throughout my startup life, I learned not to fear failure, but I learned that failure is part of the process. It's, it's basically part of your job. And um, to kind of communicate this, that failure is not uh, something to fear, I, I usually call it successfully failed startup or gracefully failed startup or something like that. Because many people also, uh, when I do startup trainings, many of the, of the people there think that uh, failure is like a, disastrous bankruptcy, like everything crashed and burned and the police came after you and uh, like people were trying to kill you for this, etc. And usually startup failure is just, you know, you know, uh, one or two months in advance, uh, you tell all the people in the startup, okay, we're shutting down in two months, uh, please start looking for a job. And then you close, close doors gracefully and you, you, you stay friends and then you start the next startup. And that's why I want to convey this, that uh, failure is actually something, something you do, not something that just happens to you. You're a serial entrepreneur. You've created and exited quite a few startups. You had an excellent run in the corporate world too. You're a mentor and coach to business at, businesses and individuals. Um, we've already discussed failure. What about success? What is your definition of it? Well, this changed a lot through, throughout the years. Um, so uh, my current definition of success is if a person is happy with what they are doing in life, with all key four, four aspects of life, if they are happy with their professional life, if they are happy with their personal life, if they are, if they are happy with their domestic life, and if they are happy with their uh, internal journey, or let's call it spiritual life. 
If you're happy in all these four aspects, you're successful in life, no matter what you do. You could be an entrepreneur, you could be working in the field, you could be in space, or you could be in a mine. Um, doesn't matter. If you are happy and satisfied with who you are and how you live your life, you are successful. This is my current definition that I'm also pursuing. An interesting thing here is that you link success to doing, not to having. Why is that? Um, because hmm, it's a good question. Having is a final state. Having is something, it's, it's an end. And doing is continuous. So having is one split second in the universe. That's like the end result happens in, in a specific split second. While doing is continuous and it happens all the time. And happiness is a state, but it's a continuous state. So this sensation of I'm successful and uh, everything is all right, uh, it's a continuous state. It's not a final. It's not something you get there and then you are there or something like that. It's a, it's a continuous dynamic, dynamic state. It's like riding a, a bicycle. You are keeping a balance, but not like standing in a single, in a single location. You're always balancing while in, in constant motion. One thing that comes to mind while discussing this continuous improvement is education. You have had your um, education in Bulgaria previously and then moved to MBA uh, in the States. Mm -hmm. Has your e education uh, stopped at any point during your life or how, what's your way of continuing your education? Mm -hmm. Well, there's formal education where you, when you go to school and then everyone's life journey is, is a learning journey. So education and learning, I would say learning is lifelong and education is, uh, is part of your learning, but it's not the only way to, to learn new things. Does this answer the question? Yeah. A few weeks ago, I had a conversation with a person that says, the most important thing in life is to never stop learning new, th new things and never stop improving intellectually. Uh, therefore, I was just uh, going for, for this particular question. Mm -hmm. uh, after your degree, after you have achieved your degree in the States, you came back to Teleric and became a business development director there. Mm -hmm. So what's so special about this culture that created, uh, that was created by the founders of Teleric, which produced and keeps producing so many entrepreneurs? Um, do you see like their sp spillover effect on the system? Yes, def there's definitely a really nice effect on the ecosystem in Bulgaria. Um, maybe the, the, the biggest thing in, in Teleric culture, so back then when I joined Teleric, uh, the, we were still kind of a small company that was growing really fast. The culture was awesome. And uh, maybe now if I have to point at one thing <coughs> that had the biggest impact on, on uh, producing, producing many entrepreneurs, it would be um, 
that the, the whole uh, company was organized in uh, multi multiple very small teams. And every, every small team of five to six people was responsible for something specific. So it was like a, like a mini startup or like, a, like, a, like its own cell, its own uh, small, small thing. Uh, and this allowed for many people in the organization uh, to be in charge of a very small team, which is so very similar to the startup experience. You're in charge of a very small team. Going back through your um, professional journey, is there a particular moment or uh, something personal, like a trait, unique, unique one, that led you into entrepreneurship? Because Previously, you were having a very nice uh, corporate career. You were in Shell, then Henkel, then Essilor, and then came back to Telerik. It changed, it changed through the years. So again, it's a more complex answer. But um, I think what has stayed constant throughout the years is my passion to create new things. And it started when I was uh, very young, when I had this... Uh, similar to Lego sets. Back then we didn't have Lego. When, I, when we had these sets, you had a certain number of pictures on the back that you can build from this thing. And I always wanted to build something that's not on the picture, something different, something. And then, yeah, through life, I wanted to do something different. And maybe it's fueled by, uh, uh, yeah, by, you know, the, the, the culture that was in Bulgaria a long time ago, like 30 years ago, that if you go down the normal path, things are not going in the right direction. Things are not happening for you. So you have to find shortcuts. You have to, um, you know, think out of the box and do things that are not by the system, by the, by the rules. And this in combination with my uh, desire to create new mm. things is probably the combination of why, why I did it. But also, of course, getting tired and bored uh, by the corporate world, because corporate is the same all over the world, and it's boring. And <laughs> at some point, even if you don't have the entrepreneurial spirit, you just get bored and you quit, and mm. then you start your own thing. So it's um, multiple factors, I would say. Yeah. Um, did your passion for uh, video games lead you into your first startup? No. My first startup was a long time ago. I was... I, I've been passionate for video games since the age of four, but I, I didn't, back then, when I started my first startup, I didn't think I can create video games. Um, my passion for video games led me into creating triad games. It was my first endeavor into the gaming industry. Of course, nobody would hire me in the, game, in, the, in the gaming industry because I have zero experience in it. So the only way to go in an industry I've been passionate all my life was to create a startup there. Yeah. And it was a very fun experience. What was the most valuable lesson that you've learned from uh, the Triad Games experience? I went to San Francisco to fundraise and um, I... I closed the deal, or I thought I closed the deal. We had a sh handshake, everything was, was good. And then I flew back to Bulgaria to, to kind of tell the team to congratulate everybody to, and, and stuff like that. And then in the following weeks, um, the, the deal kind of fell apart. 
and because I wasn't there in San Francisco to to, to kind of meet the, the the investors in person and, and really close the deal, I I think that's one of the reasons uh, things didn't didn't happen. So my learning is uh, money is not in the bank until money is in the bank. <laughs> so when you fundraise, oh, I mean it's a learning for every aspect of my life. When I start doing something. I should really, really bring it to the end, which is really hard for me. I usually, at the 80, 90 percentile completion rate, I am quite satisfied with everything. And the last mile is really hard for me. It's a trait of my personality. And I, it was a hard lesson there. Uh, it's not very common to meet a person that sold one of his startups uh, to Amazon. Uh, they have acquired your company, RGB Notes. How did you know that this was the right time to exit? We didn't know. We didn't know. Now, even, even now, if you ask me which of your comp uh, startups is uh, most likely to be acquired, um, RGB Notes will not be on the top of the list. Um, we were four people in the company. We had a, a very nice product that was being used by some of the big film studios in the States, uh, but only for validation purposes. They were still trying it out, figuring out, oh, do we want to trust these guys? They are very small startup, etc. And our plan was to actually fundraise and hire more people and become a bigger startup. So we didn't have any plans to, to exit. I didn't even know it was possible to exit at such a stage, such an early stage of a startup. And while looking for investment, we found Nimble Collective. Uh, we became partners with them. We started merging the companies. And in the meantime, Amazon came, came around and bought the whole thing. And we were surprised. We didn't know. Yeah, we had multiple conversations. And I remember the, the, the day we decided to sell, actually. I was with my wife um, up in the, at the Belmecan Lake in the summer. And it's 2,000 meters, and the lake is really beautiful. And it's really cold. It's August, but it's really cold up there. And so I'm dressed with all my winter clothes in August. <laughs> and I'm talking to my friends uh, in the States, and that's when we decided. But we didn't know whether we should sell or not. If we were like, okay, if we keep working on it for another two years, we'll be much bigger. I mean, if people are interested to buy now, can you imagine what it will be after two years? At the same time, okay. But if Amazon is interested in this space, they will probably buy another company. And in two years, they will have a product that's much bigger than ours. So they will kill us. There's the risk of uh, you know, dying in two years. There's the risk of being very successful in two years. What should we do? But long story short, we didn't know we are ripe for acquisition. We didn't know. I didn't even know a startup could be acquired at this early stage. Yeah, I was surprised it happened. So having this experience in mind, what can you advise founders that are um, in a stage of the development of the business that they're looking for investment or exiting? Well, my first advice would be keep your mind flexible. Like don't, like don't tunnel vision on one thing and this thing should happen, nothing else. I'm not open for anything else. Keep your mind flexible and listen to the music of the universe, because sometimes things will happen that are very different to where to what you are actually aiming to do, but they are the right thing. And if you are 
uh, open-minded, if, and if you keep your, your mind flexible, you will notice these things, and you will take up on these opportunities. Uh, and uh, in contrast, if you're tunnel-visioned, you will not see any of these opportunities. Your attitude towards achievement has evolved in time and experience. What drives you? What drives you towards achieving? For, so for the first 30 years of my life, I would say um, uh, creating new things, just creating something out of nothing. The sandbox, the playground experience, the, you know, the, the, whole, the whole creation thing, because it excites me. It's fun, it excite, it's exciting. Yeah. The, the repetitive things seem boring to me, which, which is something I, I, I like to improve in myself, of course, but... Um, um, creating new things excites me. So creating new products and new experiences and new things in, in the universe uh, was my biggest motivator in the first 30 years. And in the past 10, uh, almost 11 years of my life, the biggest motivator was helping others. Helping other human beings. What motivates you to keep investing time, energy and resources into the things that you have chosen to be part of is there i guess <laughs> it's a very it's a very interesting question i do things that are that resonate with my values and to do those things I don't really perceive that you need motivation to do them because they resonate with your values, right? They're, they're nice, you like them, they are valuable for you, they are good. You perceive them as good because they resonate with your values. So, um, yeah, motivation, what, what, what motivates me? Uh, maybe I can answer in a different way. <clears throat> so at the beginning, um, Excitement motivates me. In the middle, where most people rely to uh, um, uh, rely to structure or to kind of to push themselves to do it, I don't have this in me, so I don't push myself. Then I rely to other people uh, who are going in the same direction to, to motivate me by walking beside me, walking together with me. Um, so I skip this middle step. <laughs> At the beginning, it gets passion and excitement, and it bring, gives me a lot of motivation. And then in the second half of, of uh, if it's a project, mm. if it's something I do, in the second half, it's the people that are walking in the same direction with me. These are the two big uh, motivating factors. But I would say values. Whatever I value, I do it with ease. I don't even think that I need motivation or have motivation when mm. I do it. You were talking about going in a direction. Um, it sounds like a leadership to me. What qualities do you value best in leadership? What are the things that a leader needs to have? The best leaders, in my view, the best leaders are the ones who help other uh, human beings grow. Other human beings become better and better versions of them, best, the best versions of themselves. As a leader, your job is to help others to grow as human beings. And the rest, the, the business and everything else happens automatically. Mm -hmm. It's easy. 
you've turned this philosophy into your present business uh, in ST6. Mm -hmm. You put uh, the personal growth as a business core philosophy of, of the company. Yeah. Yeah. How did um, this happen? So, um, Triad Games, Hack and Paint, and RGB Notes were startups that we created out of passion for uh, creating the organizations of the future, different organizations that are focused on human growth, not on business growth, not on money. Uh, under the assumption that if you help people grow, um, then everything follows. And then I met some of my ex-colleagues from Telerik. They, they had found ST6. And when I heard they are following the same philosophy, I said, okay, this is the fourth startup I am, I am joining as a partner. This is like, uh, we have, I mean, we know each other. Um, we worked together in the past and it works quite well. And we are following the same philosophy in terms of business, how we want to create business. So, um, so we joined forces. And uh, the whole idea there is that if you invest all your effort into growing people, people will be, will, will be always growing and becoming better and better in, in everything personal skills, professional skills, everything. And then uh, they will creating the best products possible. The customers will be happy. The money will be coming in. But the, you, you see, the money is the fourth afterthought. Your main focus is the, the, the personal and professional growth of everybody, including your own. Some people see this uh, as too optimistic. Can you walk us through a process when uh, an important decision needs to be made? How do you do this in the company? Yeah, it's a very good question. Um, at, at ST6, um, we divide the decisions in four categories, small, medium, large, and extra, extra large. Uh, so um, small decision, you, anyone can, can make a small decision by themselves. No questions asked. You want to buy a new headset uh, or a new uh, a mouse or, or anything else some software that you need to do your job better, you go ahead and, and do it. Everyone has a, a company credit card, so you just you just go ahead and buy it. No questions asked. It's a small decision. Medium decisions, you have to consult with two people. One should be a person who has recently taken a similar decision. And the second person should be a person who will be impacted in some way by your decision. You consult with, with both, then you make the decision yourself. You don't ask other people. You, you make the decision and you follow through. Um, so this helps for many decisions in the organization to be, dis in, to be distributed. Everybody's making dec decisions constantly and they are the right decisions. And they are moving the organization forward. Now, larger, large decisions, they impact the whole organization. So, so many people have to participate in, in that. Um, we take these decisions in circles. A circle is responsible for specific domain and specific decision. And everybody in the circle uh, gives their opinion on the topic. So we, we move in a circle, actually. We, we, we rotate. We're not speaking over each other. Where extroverts talk a lot, introverts do not say a lot, but their uh, opinion and viewpoint is also important, but we don't get it. So that's why we, we go in, in a circle. Everybody has, uh, you have been to one of our meetings, I know. Uh, so everybody has uh, enough time to to to, to uh, 
uh, contribute their viewpoint to the situation. Then a proposal is made, or a single person or the facilitator of the meeting makes the, pro the proposal that is a kind of converging point. So when everybody speaks out, we are seeking for converging points of our opinions. And if we find a converging point or cl close to a converging point, this is the proposal we make to the organization. And we take the decision based on consent. It means nobody is against the decision. We do not vote, I'm uh, yes, no, yes, no. Any Anybody object? No? Okay, if, not, if there's no objections, we move on. The, the decision is carried. So it's very, it's very easy to, um, to make decisions in, in this way uh, because there's many, very few decisions that you would actually object. You may not like a decision, but you're not against it. So we move, we move on. A decision is good when it's uh, good enough for now and safe enough to try. We don't aim for perfect mm. decisions. Uh, what usually slows down companies and kills them is indecisions. Uh, your inability, their inability to make a decision, or uh, if they, if it takes a month to make a decision, this is uh, much more damaging than taking a bad decision, learning from it in a week, and then uh, taking the right decision. So it's very important to make decisions mm. rapidly and to, and to move forward. What about extra large decisions, extra important ones? Yes, extra large decisions, they impact the whole organization, everybody. Like if we decide to move the office to Plovdiv, say, or to, <laughs> to a different country or to a different location here in Sofia, it will impact everybody. So everybody sh uh, must have a say in this decision, equal say. And uh, there is no bosses, nobody to make the decision for you. So everybody participates in the decision. Then we either get the whole organization to participate in making in the discussion and making the decision again in a very structured and agile way. It's not it's not going to be a whole day conversation. Or uh, we can have uh, people from every single circle in the organization participating in it. And again, when I say the whole organization, the whole organization is invited to participate. Uh, but in many cases, uh, a lot of people decide not to participate in the decision. I just trust you. Like, if we uh, get in a conversation to move the office of ST6, I will not uh, join in the decision-making process because I use the office, uh, I don't use the office very often, and I trust my colleagues to find the best place for a new office. So whatever they decide, it will be good for me. I have this trust. In a similar way, if we are to decide right now what bonuses, annual or monthly bonuses to pay ourselves in the organization, it's extra large decision. It will impact everybody in the organization. Again, not everyone should participate because, again, you trust your colleagues to make the best decision that is in, in, uh, in line with the company finances, with the situation right now. And, it will not be an mm. individualistic decision where a certain individual will suffer. That's for sure. So you, should, you just trust people to make the best decision. And if you are just as passionate about innovation as we are, hit subscribe for the Recursive Podcast on YouTube or your favorite podcast platform. We're everywhere. A very interesting thing and a pattern that I see in your life is um, you've been in the, the hustle side of things. Western philosophy, go, 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 very hardworking. Uh, and then you totally change your philosophy of life. 
Um, is there a crisis that led to this decision? Or um, how did uh, your Eastern practices and philosophy came to life mm -hmm. uh, in your world? It was a crisis, crisis, but it, <clears throat> but a crisis that kind of boiled up for 20 years, not like a, like this type of burnout crisis. Um, I've been all my life. I've been trying to be happy, like I think like many people out there, and I made a lot of things in pursuit of happiness. I did a lot of things uh, in pursuit of happiness. I followed a lot of Western philosophies. I tried the positive thinking and other type of Western uh, brain philosophies to, to, to kind of to bring more happiness in my life. And I couldn't be, I, I failed. I couldn't find a way to be truly happy. So I, <clears throat> when I was young, I thought when I have more toys, I would be the truly, really happy. <clears throat> and for Christmas, actually, I received a lot of toys as gifts and I wasn't any happier. And I was disappointed. Then when I was a teenager, I thought when I, if I have a really nice girlfriend, I'll be really happy. And I had a nice girlfriend and I wasn't any happier. Or I was for, for a very short period and then it, it was the, the, the same thing. And then I said, okay, if I go in a nice university, I'll be really happy. I wasn't happy. I, if I had a really nice, jo nice job or a very nice career, I will, I, then I will really be happier. Well, I, I wasn't. And then I said, okay, if I have um, a really nice startup, then I will be truly happy. And this didn't bring me the, like, the ultimate happiness in the world. And I followed many Western philosophies to, to help me with that. And they failed or I failed to, 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 to do this using those philosophies. And then turning to the East was uh, like the only option left for me. I mean, I wish I, I, I have done it earlier because it worked. I, Taoism and Buddhism philosophies, not, not the religious side, but the philosophical side and also Stoicism. Um, there's a lot of wisdom and a lot of uh, right, right ways for, to find happiness while still successful in the business world. How does your daily meditations help you uh, be a better leader? Well, meditation help me, helps me center my, my thoughts, my emotions, my everything, center my world, balance everything and see things clearly. And it helps me to, to find more empathy, to understand other people in, in an empathizing way, not only in a logical way. And to be a really good leader, you have to support other people in their growth. And growth through empathy and, and truth, truthful understanding of others is much better than just helping them grow their uh, business skills. Like helping a human being grow is not helping them build more skills. It's actually about the mindset and the spiritual set, <laughs> if we have to create a word for that. So meditation helps you be more empathetic, calm and empathetic and understand other human beings better. Therefore, you can help them better. It's the second time in our conversation that you mentioned paying forward and uh, helping others. 
uh, you're spending quite a lot of time on mentoring and coaching activities uh, to other entrepreneurs and human beings. Uh, what have you learned uh, through this process? What do you take personally from these experiences? A lot, a lot actually. Um, by coaching others, and uh, most of my uh, coaching clients are actually entrepreneurs also like myself. So we support each other in a coaching relationship. Um, I grow as well. Like the, the coachee grows. This is the, the, the purpose of the coaching experience. But the coach grows equally fast. So it's a win-win. It's a mutual growth uh, relationship. And what I've learned is that all people all over the world, um, they have the same basic problems. Like their problems might seem different uh, because I coach uh, uh, poor people and rich people, old people and, and younger people. And yeah, it surprises me. Even now, it continues to surprise me that um, people all over the world, so doesn't matter the culture, doesn't matter how much money you have, the basic problems and fears human fears and, and human, human uh, algorithms and problems, they are the same for everyone. As you've already mentioned culture, um, do you believe there are core trends in the culture here in Southeastern Europe uh, when it comes to entrepreneurship? And um, is there a way that we can help them accelerate so the ecosystem grows? There's two things uh, I have noticed in the in Eastern Europe in terms of uh, culture that so let's start with this startup culture is uh, kind of universal throughout the world. Um, I've been to startup events in uh, in Hong Kong, in Shanghai, in the States, in Western Europe. It's the same. Like the food is different, people are different, uh, the, the way they organize their families and traditions is quite different. Startup life is the same. So, uh, if you go to a startup pitching competition, you don't know where you are in the world. You could be any, in any city, it's the same. Um, this being said, of course, the, the local culture influences uh, the startup mindset. And there's there's two things that that stand out to me to me personally here. Of course, there's there's many many details, but one um, in our region, a lot of people really fear failure. They're like, okay, I'll try this, but if it if it uh, doesn't work out, what will my friends say about me? What will my parents say about me? What will my ex colleagues say about me? And there be people fear, and again, this fear is universal. Uh, everywhere but in our region a, a lot a lot of people have this fear uh, what like I, I'm gonna be a failure if my business fails I'm gonna be a failure as a human being and we have to break this pattern we have to help people uh, outgrow this and treat failure as something you do on a daily basis it's part of your responsibilities it's, it's in your job description as an entrepreneur Get up, make coffee, fail a little, fail a lot, go to bed. Uh, it's, it's part of what you do. And it, actually, if you fail as an entrepreneur, you succeed as a human being. You grow 
And then the, your second startup, you're a much better entrepreneur. On the third startup, you're a much better entrepreneur. So you grow as a human being instead of feeling as a, as a failure. So number one, we should change this. We should help the ecosystem and everybody in it change this, grow their mindset above and beyond this fear, manage this fear very well. And many of my uh, uh, coaching conversations go through, through the fear of failure one way or another. Um, and then the second thing, <laughs> it maybe comes from the, from the past, but um, uh, there's this uh, very, very uh, subtle uh, feeling that if you, go, if you go down the normal path, things will not work out for you. So, so um, say you buy a new car and you go to register it here in the, in the police. Um, I don't know any of my friends who have, who have uh, uh, gone down the normal path to register it. So there's probably 17 steps for you. First you do this, then you do this. Then. Everybody finds a way to, to shortcut. Okay, I will just uh, do this or I will go there or I will pay 10 lev leva extra to this guy to do this, this thing. So we find shortcuts. And when you go to to the police department, it's not nice to find shortcuts because you create a mess. But in entrepreneurship, it's actually nice to think this way, to find shortcuts, to think out, uh, outside of the box, to, to not, not to follow the normal path. And we have this in our blood already. It's, we've been trained by, by the system or by our past or whatever. Um, you can even see it in traffic. Like people are always you know, switching lanes, trying to shortcut each other and stuff like that. Don't try to find shortcuts in traffic or in, uh, in normal procedures. Use your ability to find shortcuts and, and get to the final point much faster uh, in the startup world. We have this skill. We apply it in the wrong place and we create more mess in our cities. And the same skill could be very useful in the startup world, where if you follow the normal path, you will not create any inventions. Right? You will just fo follow what is already known to, to, to humanity. If you want to invent something new, if you want to create something that never existed before, you, you must have this thinking. And we have it, not only the thinking, we have it in our blood, we have it in our gut, this type of behavior. We should just learn to apply it in entrepreneurship, not, on, uh, while, not while driving the car. Recently, I've watched an amazing video about Sarah Blakely, one of the first female billionaires, founder of Spandex. Mm -hmm. uh, Spandex underwear, Spanx. Uh, and she was telling a story about her childhood when her father asked her to, um, anytime she comes back home, she needs to say whatever she did and failed at during that day. Mm -hmm. And she was even like making things up and her father, was cheering for her failures. Mm -hmm. So, uh, what I, like what you just mentioned right now um, is an amazing comparison between both cultures. Mm -hmm. Fail, fail quickly. Learn if you want to double your, uh, if you want to increase your success rate, double your failure rate, as one of the former IBM uh, CEOs has uh, uh, quoted. Uh, I, I truly believe in testing and and failing and trying again. So thank you for, um, thank you for pointing this extremely yeah. important thing. The, the difference in culture is in some cultures, failure is uh, mm. celebrated, as you just uh, said, mm. and in some cultures, failure is punished. And that's a big difference.
it's actually the um, like yeah anyway yeah uh, there is a recursive question uh, something that we ask our guests to pay down the lane for the guests coming after them mm-hmm. and uh, guest prior to your uh, participation here with us uh, gave us a question that I think you're the perfect person to answer to so Imagine that your startup exits with, um, becomes a unicorn and exits with $1 billion. Uh, what would you do with such amount of money? Let's say you are the only founder. Yeah. Let's say I have a billion dollars. What, you have what a billion do do dollars from an exit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, there is a very, yeah, there is a problem I want to find a solution to. Um, I have been in four corporate jobs and I have created eight startups. And <clears throat> with corporate job, you have your salary every month and for perpetuity. And when you decide to leave work, you usually start, you do a few interviews and then you go to the next job immediately. You kind of, you know, uh, go, you quit and then next week you start your new job. So. You have very, very small gap without, uh, without earning a pay, without earning any money, right? In the startup world, it's not like that. <clears throat> so you, at the beginning of a startup, you invest your time and you don't have any money. So you spend your spendings, uh, your savings. And then you get an investment and you start paying yourself some small salary. Like all founders pay, pay themselves the minimum salary to just, you know, not look at the at the price of the sandwiches in the cafeteria, right? So you pay your enough to survive. And then 95% of the startups fail. So out of the first 10 startups you create, only one will succeed, the others will fail. So then the startup fails, and then you are without a salary. So you earn a very small salary in the startup, then you are without a salary, without any income. Um, and then you start the, the next startup. And then in the first six months of the new startup, you don't earn anything again. And then you get some investment, et cetera. So what I'm trying to explain is that in startups, you usually go one year without, uh, without any income. Then you, do the, then you do the startups, then you have an investment, you have some income, then you go another year. So between startups, it's, it's a huge gap where entrepreneurs don't earn any income. In corporate, it's not like that. And so in corporate, you, you, you have your regular income. Uh, in the startup world, you don't. And um, I would like to close this gap somehow. I don't know how. When I get the billion dollars, I will start uh, looking for solutions and, and failing at that until I find one. But I want on to, on, also entrepreneurs, because humanity Uh, relies on entrepreneurs to create new things and bring us to the new frontier. Entrepreneurs are really important for humanity as a whole. And if it's really punishing to be an entrepreneur because you are left without any income for a year, then you get some investment, then, an, then without an income for a whole year, then some investment, then without income for another year, it's punishing, it's painful. Uh, fail, failing is painful enough. Earning minimum, minimum wage you want to pay yourself, You decide your own salary, but you usually pay your mini- the minimum salary you, you need. So you're earning minimum salary and you're without income for a whole year. 
um, and it's painful. Why? It doesn't need to be this painful. And, to, and now I hear many, many entrepreneurs saying, uh, but pain is a big driver for success. And my, my coach will say, yeah, pain is a big driver for success, but what other drivers do you have for success that are much stronger and, and better drivers than, than pain? So I want to close this gap. I want, I want entrepreneurs to also have continuous flow of income while creating the biggest innov innovations in the world. Awesome. What would be your recursive question to our next guest, not knowing who or she, um, who he or she mm -hmm. might be? My question is, uh, <clears throat> for the years to come, how do you, do you plan to do business in a more human-loving way, where human beings are more important than capital gains, than the shareholders or the money the organization makes? Awesome. Thank you. We'll be paying it forward to the next guest. There's a question that we like to ask our guests. What would you like to be remembered for? It's a good question. I've thought about it a lot. And currently my thinking, so again, through, throughout the years, I would give different answers, but my current thinking is I don't want to be rem remembered at all. Uh, this is uh, wanting to be remembered. The desire to be remembered is uh, part of the ego. And why, why should, should you be remembered? It's, people should just uh, learn what they can learn from me and move on and be happy. And that's it. Uh, remembering me again and again will be living in the past, which is again, as a coach, something I help them not to do. So I don't want to be remembered. Thank you. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for your wisdom and uh, sharing your um, your thoughts about entrepreneurship, um, personal development, and uh, so, so many more uh, important topics that are in the minds of all entrepreneurs, not only in Southeastern Europe, but in general. Thank you for being on the Recursive Podcast. Uh, dear listeners, dear viewers, uh, today Christo Nechev was, uh, was my guest, a serial entrepreneur from Bulgaria. Let's wish him all the best and maybe a unicorn startup. Thank you for being with us in this episode and can't wait to have you back next week. See you. In the next episode of the Recursive Podcast, Georgi meets the social entrepreneur Iva Kumnishka. She helps refugees gain computer skills and improve machine learning algorithms. I think it was just a desire for independence, you know, because I, I knew that I wanted to create something with a social impact. Uh, but creating an NGO would mean that we would have to be dependent on grants, on um, donations or any other type of funding. And, uh, you know, that wasn't easy to, um, to secure, uh, especially, you know, for such a controversial topics like refugees and migrants in Bulgaria. And, you know, the other reason was that I wanted this to be sustainable. You know, I didn't want it to, be, to depend on external financing. I wanted it to work on its own and to be independent. So that was it basically. I didn't start with any big desire for like earning a lot of money and, and having a glamorous exit and then becoming like a, a serial entrepreneur or whatever. I just wanted whatever I'm working on to be sustainable. And if you are just as passionate about innovation as we are, 
hit subscribe for the recursive podcast on YouTube or your favorite podcast platform. We're everywhere.